Good morning, welcome. My name is Jeremy, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and I particularly want to give you guys a warm welcome if you're from reality here this morning. It's great to have you with us. Uh, we are going to be looking at what many people would describe as the classic Christmas passage this morning. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 9. If you have a church Bible, it's page 987. Some of you who've been uh, going to carol services or maybe grew up as a Christian, you'll have heard this passage a number of times. And maybe the words, these, the words for, uh, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Those words will resound in your mind. You'll have heard them many times. And it will conjure up in your, in your mind uh, the image of Christ in the manger, perhaps various animals crowding around him. And of course, it's a heartwarming image, a familiar scene to many of us. And yet, as, as we look at it this morning, I want us to look at this passage afresh. I want to suggest to you that it's actually much more challenging than you realise. To see this only as the announcement of a birth of a child, to, to focus on that manger scene, is in some way to minimise this passage, and perhaps even to misunderstand it. See, it's much more than that. Fundamentally, what we're looking at today in Isaiah 9 is a declaration of government. It's a royal proclamation. The declaration that a divine king is coming to rule and reign over all people. It speaks of a great warrior king coming to bring lasting peace. That's why I've entitled today's message, The Government of Peace. And really, as we unpack these verses, what I want to show you is that these words written 2,700 years ago are absolutely explosive. They predict Christ's arrival 700 years later, and they go on to describe what will happen when Christ returns to reign on this earth, how he'll bring complete peace. Now, as we read this, it's going to sound like he's speaking in the past tense, but what Isaiah's doing is he's looking forward to a time when the full events that he's describing have already taken place. So he's looking back, as it were, to the future. So I'm going to read to you from Isaiah 9, verse 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made way, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to thank you for the privilege of opening your word this morning, of just glimpsing these incredible promises, these words that you spoke through the prophet Isaiah 2,700 years ago. Lord, we're in awe of the way these words speak of the coming king. We thank you that the king has come, that Christ is reigning on the throne. Thank you for the privilege of dwelling upon that fact this morning. Help us to see your great and glorious king, the Lord Jesus Christ, in all his glory this morning. Help us to gaze upon your beauty, Lord. Help us to see and be gripped by the promise of peace that is coming. Help us to know the reality of peace now. Help us to live in light of all that you have promised. For your glory. Amen. So why is this passage so important for us to look at? Why are these words, written so long ago, so relevant for us? I want to give you three reasons. It speaks to our doubts, our despair, and our anxiety. Some of you aren't Christians. Or maybe some of you are Christians, but you struggle with the idea that the Bible is the inspired word of God. So you're bringing some level of doubt as we look at the Bible today. You might say, how can Christians claim that God inspired the authors of all the books of the Bible? I'm from a Jewish background. I became a Christian when I was at university about 11 years ago. And uh, when I, after I became a Christian, I kind of had this moment of doubt. I said, well, okay, I've given my life to follow Christ, but is this really true? Can I really trust what I've surrendered my life for? And so I ended up looking at through the, the Bible, looking at different books that kind of spoke about the, the evidence for um, the historical accounts of the New Testament. But really, it was this idea that we're looking at today, this idea of biblical prophecy that spoke so persuasively to my doubts. One of the things that convinced me the most that the Bible is the word of God is the existence of clear biblical prophecy. What I mean by that is, really, this this passage we're looking at is is part of a number of different prophecies, uh, written a collection of different writings scattered throughout the Old Testament that are written hundreds of years before the, uh, the birth of Christ, which predict his life in crystal clear clarity. This very passage speaks about a light dawning, about making glorious the way way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee. Galilee, the very location of Christ's ministry. It speaks about how the Messiah will be descended from, will be seated on the throne of David. uh, descended from the lineage of David. And we looked at a couple of weeks ago at the carol service, how Christ uh, is, is, is in that lineage from David. Elsewhere, prophecy describe how the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Later on in Isaiah, it foretells the manner of his death. It talks about him being pierced for our transgressions. Of course, it's speaking about how he'd be crucified, how his hands would be pierced on the cross. It even predicts the manner of his burial. Later on in Isaiah, it talks about him being buried uh, in a rich man's grave. And we know from the Gospels that he was buried by a man called Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy member of the ruling council of the Jewish people. See, these, these prophecies are written hundreds of years before Christ's incarnation. And these, the writers would have had 
very little to grasp on when they're, they're looking forward to this truth. But taken together, these prophecies paint a very clear picture of the life and death of Christ. And there's no way, of course, that Christ could have orchestrated his life to, to line up with them about where he'd be born or how he would die. They point to the fact that behind the many different authors of the Bible, there is one author, one voice, speaking through these different men, writing centuries apart. They prove that the Bible is no mere human document, but many different authors writing in different places, inspired by one God. So it speaks to our doubts. It also speaks to our despair. You don't need to be a particularly engaged cultural commentator to look around our culture right now and see that we are living in something of a culture of despair and hopelessness. Of course, they just had a general election, and Jen was telling me her friends on WhatsApp, my wife Jen, uh, it was just all sense of despair as they reflected on the election. And so many, that's kind of the, the culture that we're swimming in, a sense of hopelessness. A sense of hopelessness as we consider all the many ways that humanity is doomed, from environmental catastrophe to uh, just huge divisions in our culture. There's a, sense, there's a deep sense of hopelessness in our culture. And yet this passage is, in essence, an announcement of hope. He's writing to a people who are experiencing anguish and gloom. He writes in verse 1. And I thought many of us could, could say, yes, in a sense, that's our culture, experiencing anguish and gloom. And these words are intended to speak hope into that situation, to declare a time is coming where there will be no gloom, where everything will be put right. In fact, what they really speak to is the distinctive hope of the Christian faith. Indeed, the importance of Christians living and embodying that hope. Thirdly, it speaks to our anxiety, our present lack of peace. I think the 21st century could rightly be described as the age of anxiety. Alongside all our despair that we see in the culture, there's also often a sense of existential anxiety going on in our millennial culture. Anxiety about the future. What's my personal future? Who am I? What's my life for? What should I do? What's my purpose? And this promise speaks directly to the experience of anxiety. See, the central thread that Isaiah is painting in this picture is a government of peace. The coming king is described as the prince of peace. In verse 7, Isaiah foretells, of the increase and of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Speaking of everlasting peace. So peace is the dominating theme. And what I want to do really is is paint you a picture this morning of of the warrior king at the centre of this passage that it's describing. And then I want to show you really this promise of peace. And in a way, this promise of peace is in two parts. Isaiah is seeing all the way to the end of time when Christ will come back and reign fully on this earth. And speaking of the peace that will come in that moment. He's also speaking of the experience of peace today for all those who come under Christ's government today. So we're going to look at the warrior king, the future promise of peace, and the experience of peace that he brings now. So first then, the warrior of peace. The war- sorry, the warrior king. The most significant part of this prophecy is the man at the centre of it all. It's a royal declaration. He's describing a child who will, bo- who will be born, who will reign on David's throne. Of course, David was the king of Israel, ruling over the people of God. And since then, after David, there'd been a litany of failed rulers, so much so that the, the nation had divided between the nation of Is- the, the Israel in the north and Judah in the south. They'd led their people astray spiritually and even to their own destruction. So the very context that Isaiah is speaking to is is the fact that these two northern regions, Zebulun and Naphtali, have been invaded by the Assyrians. 
They, they've been taken over. They're experiencing anguish and gloom. And, you know, it talks about a deep darkness and other translations kind of living in the shadow of death. Why? Because they've just experienced great uh, military failure, the destruction of their people. Some of their family will have been taken away. So he's saying at the end of this lineage of failed rulers, one perfect king is coming to rule over the people of God. But more than that, he's a divine king. God himself is coming to reign over the people. You can see that in this, these incredible words in verse 6. It describes him as a wonderful counsellor, one who carries supernatural wisdom with him. The mighty God. That phrase can only be used to be described uh, the God of all people. He talks about him as everlasting father. No human ruler could ever be everlasting. Kings, presidents, prime ministers come and go. But this ruler, this king, will rule forever. And he's a father, the ruler who truly cares for his people. Think about the way that so often our leaders are exposed before us as not really wanting the interests of the people they're ruling over, they're leading. And yet this ruler will care for his people. He will rule in perfect justice and righteousness. He'll be the perfect king. No human being could ever match this description. You know, and see, but you've really got to see one further layer. You see the, the, the king, you see the fact that he's divine. But there's a third layer that I think we often miss when we look at this passage. And that is that, that Isaiah is describing a warrior king. In verse 4, he describes how this warrior king will break the rod of oppression. He will defeat the enemies of the people of God, just like the way the Lord used Gideon to defeat the Midianites. In verse 5, he's the leader who will bring peace. Such peace that the boot of the tramping warrior, the garments, the, the, kind of the soldiers' uh, outfits, will be burned for fuel in the fire. There'll be no need for these outfits anymore because he's brought peace. He's a warrior who will bring peace. And how do you get, I mean, the only way to really bring peace, to guarantee peace, is the sword. Certainly, that's the way that they're reading this. When an, when an Israelite's hearing this passage, they're, hearing, they're thinking a conquering king like David, one who will defeat and silence the enemies of Israel once and for all. They'll no longer be troubled by the Assyrians or the Babylonians, all sorts of different enemies. Be a king over the people of Israel like David, who is able to defend them and bring them peace. And really what I think this is speaking to is the fact that often our vision of Christ is too small. Some of you have a kind of away in the manger vision of Christ. Particularly when you think about Christmas, you're thinking uh, the Christ child, the baby in the feeding trough. You know, that, that away in the manger talks about no crying he makes, as if he didn't cry. I mean, obviously he cried. Anyone who has a baby will tell you that. Really, what I'm saying is that at times that when we look at this, this Christmas picture particularly, we can sometimes fail to see the majesty of Christ that looms behind the picture. Even if you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian and you've never read the Gospels, the description of Christ's ministry on this earth, uh, you might think Christ is, is often portrayed in our popular culture as kind of a peace-loving, maybe slightly kind of hippie-ish, profound moral teacher. And really what you'll see, actually, is that that's a really very superficial misunderstanding of the identity of Christ. It's true, the incarnation, the, thing, the, the central event of Christmas, is a paradox. It's strength coming in weakness. It's strength humbling himself. 
Said in, Paul, describing it in Philippians, said he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. There is, it is a moment of profound humility, of, of Christ taking on weakness. But it would be so easy in all of that to miss the fact that this is Christ who rightly reigns over the universe. When we look at this passage that Isaiah is describing, what, I want, what I'm saying is do not miss behind the meek child of the incarnation or even the humility of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, the warrior king who looms behind this picture. Consider in Revelation uh, this picture of Christ seated on the white horse, leading heaven's armies, coming back to judge the living and the dead. This is how uh, John puts it in Revelation. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When we hear that image, when we see the image that Isaiah is, is describing for us, there's a sense to which we can only but bow and worship as we recognise Christ's majesty. And I think when you understand this identity of Christ the King, it should change our response to him significantly. See, first of all, this is just a really strong challenge to our deep sense of autonomy. This announcement says loudly and clearly there is a new sheriff in town, one who rightfully stands above all authorities. This, this, this announcement may sound very benign to you, but it's actually a deeply threatening one. Think about Herod's response to the news that Christ had been born in Matthew's Gospel. When he hears the wise men have come to, fi- and to find the Christ, the King of the Jews, he tells them to tell him when he, they found him. And then they're warned by God in a dream not to, so they, they don't. And he becomes furious. He ends up slaughtering hundreds of, of baby boys in that region because he's trying to kill this king of the Jews. Why? Because he's threatened. He's threatened by the announcement that there is now another authority who stands above all other authorities. Even in that early Christian proclamation, Jesus Christ is Lord, there is a sense to which he's saying, we are, we are saying, Christ is above all other authorities. There's a sense of deep challenge. Think how, how challenging that would have felt to a Roman hearing that, who was used to saying, Caesar is Lord, in the worship of Caesar, in the whole cult of the emperor. To say, uh, the early Christians developed a phrase that sounded exactly the same. It was a counterclaim, saying, no, above Caesar, there is one who we must worship. So this announcement of the king is deeply threatening to all who might claim authority. And in our culture, what is the highest authority? It's the self. So I am the greatest. I am the highest authority of my life. The idea of submitting to any external authority sits uncomfortably with us. 
You can see this in the rhetoric around, around management in workplaces that talk about allow, giving your employees maximum autonomy. You can see this in the language around parenting. They talk about cri- uh, not Christ-centered parenting, children-centered parenting, uh, child-centered parenting, uh, where you facilitate the child to be able to make all the decisions for themselves. Instead of you telling your children what to do, you help them in order to be able to navigate every decision in life. And the idea of discipline feels deeply unattractive to our culture. I think really what this just reflects is not just a cultural moment. It reflects the, the deep desire in, within each one of us to be the master of our own destiny. I mean, you know, you don't have to uh, have a child for very long to see this. If any of you are parents, we've got a one-and-a-half-year-old, uh, Caleb, and right now his favourite word is no. And, you know, every, every time you maybe you want to do something, you say, no, 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 no. It's, it, you, don't, you don't need to be a psychology master's, uh, you don't need to be a psychology uh, expert to see that some, deep within the human soul is a desire for autonomy and control. And so in this announcement comes directly counter to that, and really what it speaks to is the fact that the gospel is offensive. It deeply challenges that desire for autonomy. It says humanity can't solve its own problems, that's why you need a, you need a king, not from, from your own, but God himself coming to reign down on, over all humanity. And it says you as an individual cannot be in control of your own life. You need God's government. Of course, that's why pride is such a problem. You read through the Gospels, and again and again, Christ is challenging pride. Think about how he says, it's not the healthy, I've not come for the healthy, I've come for the sick. He's saying, I've not come for those who think they don't need me, I've come for the people who recognize they cannot do it without me. And so you must hear, inherent in this call that Christ is the king, the call to come under Christ's rule in this passage. And really, I think the more than that, there's even an implicit warning. We know that in the, in the Gospels that Christ comes with an offer of peace. He gives his life on the cross as a peace offering, as a declaration that God wants to be reconciled with humanity, that even though you've lived uh, rejecting his rule, he wants to make peace with you, to bring you under his government, that you might have everlasting peace with God. And yet you do not mistake this peace offering as a suggestion that Christ can simply be ignored. You have to see that this Great warrior king is coming to establish peace on the earth. Either you can accept his government and live under his peace, or you can reject it and face his judgment and destruction. You must hear, with this promise of peace, comes a necessary promise of the destruction of evil, to destroy all those who stand opposed to his peace. This announcement of a king is either great news if you respond to him, the offer of peace, or it's terrible news, depending on where you stand. And really this speaks to the fact that there is no neutrality, no half in, half out with Christ. Some of you may treat Christ with a degree of reverence. Maybe you come to him looking for wisdom and insights. Maybe you call yourself a Christian. But this declaration clarifies things. It says you only accept Christ, you only really Uh, respond to Christ when you come under his government by submitting to his rule in your life. It's not enough just to enter into a relationship with him, to pray to him, to even want to kind of take him as a model of inspiration. This declaration calls for nothing less than total surrender. Saying Christ cannot merely be your teacher, your inspiration, or your friend. He must be your Lord. It says, you, as a Christian, you are a man or woman under authority. Like a soldier under the commanding officer, like a servant with his master. 
It changes how you approach life. As you consider whether to respond to that text message from that person who you know isn't good for you and you know isn't God's will, you can remind yourself, no, I'm a, I'm a man under authority right now. I'm a woman under authority. I have a new commander. I'm under Christ's government. I can say no to this. Obedience is the defining feature of the Christian life, and you serve the warrior king. But in all of this, we cannot forget the goal of the warrior king to bring peace. The essence of this announcement is the coming of a government of peace. And we stand in the midst of that promise. Christ has come. He reigns now over all those who accept and respond to his government, all those who have accepted and followed Christ. But he's coming back to judge the living and the dead and to reign fully over this world. And that's really what Isaiah is describing here. Which brings me on to my next point, the promise of peace. Isaiah is describing, I want you to see the beauty of what Isaiah is describing here, of complete peace and justice on the earth. Verse 4, the oppressor has been overthrown. The rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. It's speaking like the, it's a reminder of like the moment in Israel's history when they were liberated from Egypt and they were brought out of slavery saying one day there is a day coming where there will be no more oppression, no more human trafficking, no more young women being abused for pornography, no more manipulation of one another, no more abuse. Describing a day where where peace will reign over all people, where there will be no more conflict. Verse 5, the soldiers' garments have been rolled up, those very weapons of war that we all recognise as necessary in a a world where we do not really know that we're safe and secure because we cannot really trust people, those weapons, those soldiers' garments will be rolled up and burned in the fire. There's no need for them anymore because there is complete peace between all people. It's a reminder of that there's beautiful verses in Isaiah 2 when he says, they will beat their swords into plowshares. The weapons of war are redundant now saying that it's really speaking of that beautiful Christian promise that one day Christ is coming back to reign fully on this earth and to establish lasting and complete peace. This is how John puts it in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things are passed away. The great commonality, the great thread of that promise, I think, is that sin has been destroyed. The great evil within humankind that forces us apart from each other, that causes selfishness and conflict and injustice, all the things that, we, that, that destroy our peace and our joy in this world, that has been destroyed. All those who trust in Christ have been given new hearts and there is no evil anymore. Death is finished. Suffering is destroyed. And some of you may say, when you hear that, it just feels very pie in the sky. It doesn't really feel like it has any impact for my life today. And I would say the exact opposite. It speaks directly to the despair and hopelessness of our age. We live in a crisis of hopelessness. We live in a society that has very little tangible hope for the future. You can see this in, in the, the TV and the films that are produced. They're very comfortable in a kind of dystopian reality where stories don't end well. There's a kind of darkness often we're very comfortable with. I, 
I, shouldn't, I, I wouldn't recommend watching this TV show, but I watched a TV show this week that ended with, um, with literally two children, like one teenager, one child, like stabbing to death their stepfather. And it was just absolutely brutal. It came at the end. It was just shocking that, that, was, that someone thought, yeah, this is, that we can watch this. Why? Because we're comfortable with a darkness. Actually, we don't really know how to communicate joy because joy feels very inauthentic, very unreal and not part of the human experience. Jocelyn, who was up uh, leading us in worship, um, put it like this in one of her Salt articles. We know that happily ever after rom-com is not an authentic picture of life and love, and that people don't just miraculously recover from bereavement, life-changing accidents, or crippling mental illness. While fiction used to be a way to leap through the looking glass into worlds of possibilities, it's now more likely to be an honest sit-down in front of a grimy mirror reflecting all of life's ugliness. I'm thinking of that TV show Black Mirror. That vision of the future, which is always so broken in some way. We can see this hopelessness in, the, in things like the suicide rate. Suicide is the greatest killer of men under 50. And I think it, you'd be hard-pushed to think that suicide isn't. Uh, people saying, I have no hope for this life anymore, and I might as well end it. Saying, life doesn't offer anything for me, I'd rather not exist. So I think we can see this hopelessness in all sorts of ways. And I think we know, we can see often some of the drivers behind this. The ongoing discussion of various threats to our existence, whether it be extremism or the rampant divisions in our society or the overconsumption that we're all participating in or the impending environmental disaster. And this is very much true of our cultural moment, but in in one sense, it's, it's nothing new. There was a group of uh, intellectuals who kind of came to the the forefront of society in the early part of the 20th century, and they came with a kind of new humanistic hope that one day that human beings, with the the help of technology, will kind of be able to conquer ills in society, that we'll live in a flourishing world. But then they saw two world wars happen. They saw the 20th century, one of the most bloodiest centuries in human history, and their hope was destroyed. This is how the novelist H.G. Wells, who was part of that generation, put it, writing after World War II. The cold-blooded massacres of the defenceless, the return of deliberate and organised torture, and the fear to a world from which such things seemed nigh-well banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he's been pleased to call himself, is played out. It's 70 years later. Events feel very different But we'd have to agree with Mr. Wells that Homo sapiens feels like he's been played out. Humanity seems uh, capable of incalculable human evil and self-destruction. And I'd go even further than that and say the prevailing secular worldview gives gives no hope. Uh, The uh, evangelist Glenn Scrivener describes the crushing lack of hope contained within the secular worldview, and he puts it so well, I want to read it to you. It says, we are the flotsam of a cosmic explosion and biological survival machines, wet robots clinging to an insignificant rock, hurtling to- through a meaningless universe towards external extinction. I'm sorry, I'm giving you such a hopeful message at Christmas. 
But still, the new, and this is, this is great, he comes, the, the way he puts it, the way we seek to distract ourselves from the complete lack of hope in the, in the dominating culture. But still, the new flavoured flavored from latte from Starbucks is incredible. And have you tried hot yoga? And we're renovating the kitchen. So, you know, that's nice. As the an, an, annihilating tsunami of time bears down on us, we obsess over our sandcastles. The promotion, the holiday, the new gadget, and we dare not look up. Our culture doesn't have an answer to this hopelessness. It just seeks to distract itself from it. And yet this is a problem because hope is essential to the human condition. It's essential for human flourishing. One writer put it like this, what we believe about the future controls our experience of the present. We are hope-based creatures. Humans can't survive without hope. Consider, if you're ever going through suffering or a difficult experience, what keeps you going often is the, knowing that this will end, that this suffering will come to an end one day, that things will get better. And yet into this hopelessness, what we're saying here, and what the picture that Isaiah is painting, is saying that Christianity is inherently hopeful. A time is coming when the great evils of our age will be destroyed, when justice will finally be done, when Christ will bring a final reckoning to all the evil that has been done for generations. When those who've trusted in him, those who've come to faith in Christ, who've turned their lives over to him, will meet him face to face. When the struggles of this life, the evil, the selfishness we see in ourselves will be destroyed and a final lasting peace will break out with the renewed people whose hearts have been transformed, no longer lovers of self, but lovers of Christ and each other. And I think as we see the hope that Isaiah is painting for us, my great concern is that Christians do not live with this hope. You're not not living in light of the promises that Isaiah is reminding us of here. I think we can see this in a few ways. We can see this in the way that we're often shaped by the same sense of despair that we experience in our culture. As we lurch from global crisis to crisis, our hearts are caught up in it and and we're all despairing. I won't ask the obvious question, but three years ago when the Brexit vote happened, what, you know, how many of your hearts dropped? Did you think, what's, what, what's the future for our country? I did ask the inevitable question, sorry. I know we shouldn't talk about Brexit anymore. I'm not saying as a Christian you shouldn't be unaware of global events or shutting our ears to the injustices around us, but quite the opposite. As we approach world events, we do it with a confidence that one day Christ will establish his rule over the planet. You can see this in the way that we live for the moment, that we're chasing the same goals as everyone else around us. Career success, financial gain, not bad things in themselves. But if we only chase them and we think that this is it, we forget that one day these things will fade away. There's a great danger that you've switched off from the reality of future hope that Isaiah is describing. I think when you have this future hope, it changes everything. It gives you a new endurance for life. You, you know, we talk, people have talked about the idea that the Christian life is a battle. This is giving endurance for the battle. It's saying that, yes, it's hard now, but you know how the story ends. You know that Christ has already achieved the victory on the cross, and the victory is just working its way out. But one day we will all experience that full victory. It means you're able to endure suffering in a new way. It's very likely that you will experience suffering in this life, either just because you live in a fallen world or because you experience the suffering of following Christ. Paul the Apostle had his own fair share of suffering. He talks about receiving from the Jews 40 lashes, beaten with rods, pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. Um, I spent a night and a day in the open sea, constantly on the move. And what does he call this? 
light and momentary afflictions. I, you know, I don't know about you, but when those things, when I, if I was to experience those things, I wouldn't be describing them as light and momentary afflictions. Jen will tell you that when I get a cold, I'm complaining about things. I'm, I'm feeling a sense of woe is me, and I don't feel like life can go on until this suffering is out of my life. And yet Paul is looking at this suffering face on and is able to carry on. Because he's looking to the eternal weight of glory. He says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Paul is not looking at only his present situation. He's looking at this future peace that Christ is bringing. Saying, and is able to endure through the suffering of his life. This, this sense of future destiny should give us a great sense of joy and celebration. In verse 3, it talks about, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. It's speaking of how one day when Christ returns, there will be abundant joy, like a joy which you have when you're bringing in the harvest. What I'm saying is that joy then should leak into our lives now. That we're living in light of the joy that we will experience for eternity with Christ. Which brings me on to my final point. The present experience of peace. See, Christians are not just waiting for Christ's government. The child has been born. He's grown up. The government is on his shoulders. Christ is reigning now. The Christian has entered into Christ's government it's like, you know, you're, you're a citizen of London, you're, part, you're a citizen of the UK or wherever, wherever else in the world, but you are a citizen of Christ's government. You're under his rule and reign and authority now. You're a citizen of two places. And, when you, and as you've come under his government, you're entering into his peace. It's like Christ's government is like a sanctuary of peace. Consider like a war zone and there, are, and there are places in that war zone that are kind of protected by the UN and or whoever it is that, met, that ensures there's peace. You're, you're living in a sanctuary of peace as we're in a world of, of destruction and conflict and, and complete lack of peace. What it's saying is that this peace that Isaiah is describing, as well as a promise for the future, is the present reality for the believer. As you've entered into Christ, as you've entered into his government, you've become part of his family and, into, and you've experienced his peace. You've received his peace. What I'm saying really is that peace, the experience of peace, is inextricably linked with following Christ. Consider his promises in the gospel. Peace I leave you. This is to his disciples. Peace I leave you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Or in Philippians where Paul talks about the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. The Christian's not unaware of the disorder in the world and not unaware of the lack of peace that we experience around us, but they're living in a different place. They're living in Christ's peace. He's changed their hearts. What does this mean? It means if you're a Christian, you never experience peace. If you're constantly worrying about all sorts of different things, if you're always anxious, and I'm not talking about clinical anxiety, I think that's something slightly different, you have to ask yourself really whether you've come to Christ, whether you've really come under his government. What it says, also it says the converse of that. If you're looking for peace, you will only find it in Christ. This world is full of people who are pursuing peace in all sorts of different ways. Yoga, mindfulness, even Netflix often is just basically wanting to detach from reality and engage and kind of give myself some peace. 
But really, all these ways are often just ways of detaching ourselves from the stresses and pains of life. But the crushing existential reality uh, remains. The despair about the future, the uncertainty about your purpose, the chasing after certainty in a fundamentally uncertain world. These things don't change your reality. They just help you to detach. They may bring you momentary or periodic peace, but it doesn't last. They don't deal with the foundational reasons for the lack of peace. But this promise from Isaiah does. It starts with the realisation that the government is not on your shoulders. The government is on his shoulders. So much of our angst in our lives is built from a desire to be able to control the future, to attempt to change the things in the future that you can't change now. So we madly rush around trying to maximise our circumstances, find the perfect job, find the perfect relationship, get into the perfect lifestyle regime. You know, New Year's coming up, you're all going to be reading those blogs and different things to get your year in exactly the right way. What are you trying to do? You're trying to guarantee your future happiness. Instead, you'll find great peace from accepting the reality, and whether you're a believer in God or not, you have to accept this, that you are not in control of your life. But not simply because you choose to trust in some kind of impersonal universe and say, que sera, sera, what will be, will be. No, because you know that one who is seated on the throne is sovereign over the universe, and he can be trusted because he loves you. You cannot guarantee the future, but there is one in government right now who can be trusted. You can breathe a big sigh of relief. You're not in control of your life, and that's actually a relieving thing. This is why Jesus can say, cast your burdens unto me. Or this is why he makes all the promise. In Matthew 6, he talks about, it might be Matthew 5, believers need not worry about whether they have food or clothing because they have a heavenly father who knows what they need loves them. The more Christians grasp the sovereignty of God, the more they're able to pray and act and live with confidence. Just recently, I went to visit um, a a, a couple that just met a husband. He's not a Christian, um, but uh, his wife is a Christian. She's recently become a Christian over the last few years. And uh, there'd been sickness in the family. The the husband was very sick. But what was really fascinating is this husband noticed the way his wife responded to the sickness in a totally different way now that she'd come to Christ. It wasn't that she didn't recognize that her husband was sick and wasn't concerned about that, but before she would have worried about it, she would have been kind of an anxious tailspin, but now she was calm and hopeful and confident in the goodness of God regardless of what happened. What a beautiful thing to be able to walk through suffering with confidence and hope. It's not saying that things will always turn out perfectly. We live in a fallen world. But Christ is on the throne. And the problem is that many of you don't believe this. Christian, you must remember where you're standing, that you are under Christ's government. There's no need to anxiously obsess over what you're going to do or where you're going to live or whether 2020 will bring perfect peace and joy. You have the certainty of knowing that Christ is in control. What it says is that worry is not just a kind of negative thought pattern, but actually it's, a, it's really symbolic of not trusting God. It needs to be confessed and brought to the throne of Christ. Something that can be actively resisted with the truth of Christ's sovereignty and his love for you. But really, this experience of peace is, is too precious to keep it to ourselves. 
You see, the whole picture here is one of sharing in Christ's peace. And what it says is that we have the privilege of becoming Christ's ambassadors. It says, you have become ambassadors of peace. Isaiah is speaking here of an ever-increasing government, of a nation that is multiplying. And this is what we've seen in the trajectory over the last 2,000 years. The church has expanded. His government has expanded throughout the world, such that people of almost every nation worship and have responded to Christ. And it says, you've become part of that government. You share in Christ's peace. And you have become an ambassador of peace. You have the privilege of inviting others in to the great peace that you now experience with Christ. You have the great privilege of announcing to the world that there is one on the throne who can be trusted. As they despair about all the different rulers and authorities that we have in this culture, they can look to Christ with you and experience his peace. You've been given the privilege of declaring Christ's peace to the world. We have the privilege of speaking to our lost, despairing, anxious world and telling them we have found one who brings lasting peace. So as I conclude, I want to make a few invitations. The first is, there are some of you here who aren't Christians. And you must hear, as you hear this description of Christ, the warrior king who brings peace, the invitation to come under Christ's government. The great news of this passage is that the warrior king, who guarantees peace, ultimately peace with God, by giving his own life as a peace offering. He's not, but the, you know, the, this picture may think that the way that Christ will bring peace into your life is by some kind of destruction. The destruction he brought on himself. Such that there is a guarantee of peace for all those who want to enter into it. 33 years after this boy was born, he gave himself as a peace offering. He gave his life on the cross, taking the judgment that we deserve, that we might have lasting peace with God. The great vehicle of peace is not the sword, but it's Christ's death on the cross. And Christ is coming to you today with a royal pardon, with an invitation to come under his government and experience his peace. That starts with a surrender. It starts with a recognition that you can't be in control of your own life. And an invitation for Christ to rule your life. We'd love to pray with you afterwards if that's you. For a Christian, for the Christian here, for some of you, I think you need to hear the call again that Christ is King. You've been drifting, you've been living in, in your own ways, your own patterns. You've forgotten that you're under Christ's government, not living as a citizen of Christ's government, but living as a citizen of this world. It's time for you to lay down your weapons and to draw near to Christ, to experience his lasting peace, to lay down those anxieties, to draw near to Christ and the cross and to lay those anxieties at his feet. Christ has come to embrace you and draw you into his family. But really, the final call in all of this, and the band want to come up, for all Christians here, there's a calling to rejoice. This is fundamentally a message of hope, a reminder that peace is coming, that as we look out in a broken world, that we know that, one is, that Christ is ruling today, the king has come, and the king is coming. That one day his reign will be tangibly felt completely and utterly throughout the world. We may be surrounded by anguish and gloom, but we remember that peace is coming, and this is an opportunity to rejoice to rejoice that our King is coming to judge the living and the dead.
Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for the incredible reality of your peace. I want to thank you that you bring complete and lasting peace. That one day you're coming back to bring your reign and rule on this earth in complete authority. Thank you that you reign now, Lord, over our lives. Thank you that you are the rightful king over the whole planet, over the whole universe. We want to recognize your authority. We want to come back to your authority, Lord, where we have rejected your authority, where we have ignored your authority. Lord, we want to say you are our king. We want to thank you that you love us. We want to thank you that there's always an opportunity to come back to your throne, to bow before you, to kneel before your throne, and to experience your grace, Lord. Lord, we want to thank you for that amazing grace. We want to thank you that you have welcomed us into your family, that you've given us the abundant experience of your peace. We want to lay down our anxieties before you. We want to lay down our fears for the future before you. We want to say, Lord, thank you that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Lord, help us to trust every part of our lives into your hands. Lord, help us to know that you are sovereign. Lord, thank you that your love is better than life. Thank you that even though we don't know the end of everything in our lives, we don't know how everything will turn out next year, we know the end of, of history. We know that you're coming back, Lord. We know that your peace will break out. We know that one day there'll be no more suffering, no more sin, no more death, no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain, because you're coming back. We want to thank you, Lord. We want to say hallelujah. Hallelujah, Lord. We want to rejoice with you of your coming peace.